Good morning, everyone. When last week the news broke of King Charles being sick, it was neat to see all the outpouring of support he, he and the royal family received. It's just a great evidence for the position the monarchy holds in the UK and, of course, also in this country, in Canada. But also evidence for the human connection, the relationship between the people and the crown, and in this case specifically with the king. Now for us, that seems to be normal or the right thing to do. But it is remarkable, remarkable if we compare it to the world of the ancient Near East. That is the world that gives us the backdrop for the Old Testament. Because in that times, dynasties and rulers were far less secure in their position. And so falling ill could spell doom. And so these rulers were far more concerned with holding on to their power. One way they did this was to develop what's called a royal ideology. That is an ethos. Why a certain king should be in power and not another one? Or if I put this into the me position, why I should be king and not that guy? And part of that was that they represented themselves, for instance, as warriors who defeat any enemy, who take booty, and by that provide for their people. Or by being more just and wiser than anybody else. Now, while Israel's neighbors engaged in such an ideology, Israel herself did not. And even though we know David was a great warrior and, and King Solomon was the wisest man living in at that time, at, at the end, ultimately, they attributed this to God, the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And instead of glorifying and worshiping rulers, they were exalting God, the sovereign of the universe in this regard. For instance, in Psalm 68, the psalmist praises God as divine warrior and provider for the people. And I'm just reading a few verses from the psalm. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. Then verse 7. When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it, and from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. Verse 12, king and armies flee in haste, in the camps men divide the plunder. 17, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai to his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord, might be dwelling there. And he closes, sing to God, O kingdom of the earth, sing praise to the Lord. To him who rides the ancient skies above, who thunders with mighty voice. 
proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Here the psalmist invokes God as divine warrior to repeat for the people what he has done in the past and provide them for them and empower them for battle. Now, what has this to do with our study of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon? And more specifically, what has this to do with our passage for today, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16? Well, the Apostle Paul quotes from the psalm, from Psalm 68, verse 18. And as he's quoting, he's reinterpreting this verse praising Christ as the ultimate warrior feeds his foes, leads them captive, and gives gifts to his people. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And it elaborates a little bit further what does he ascended mean, except he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, who are the enemies Christ has vanquished? Whom is he leading captive? Well, from the background of our book of Ephesians, these are the spiritual, the satanic powers that are behind the idols and the gods. For instance, in Ephesus, he talked about of the Artemis of the Ephesians. In Colossae, in all of Asia Minor, and by implication, all around the world. We have come across this idea before when we studied the book of Colossians, chapter 2, uh, verse 15. Here it says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Disarming is a little bit weak here, translated in the NIV. It is more like he stripped them of their armor, their weapons, and let them, like the Romans, would lead their defeated enemies in triumph. And he just not defeated hostile forces. Well, on the cross, he defeated the ruler of this world, Satan himself, sin and death. This echoes what we read in Ephesians at the beginning of our, our study in chapter, in chapter 1, starting in verse 19b. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Christ has the supremacy in everything we heard last week. This is what 
we sometimes call Christos Pantocrator, Christ Almighty ruling in the heavenlies. But what are the gifts he's handing out? And what are they being used for? Well, I think it's time to read, that, read our passage together. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. As we are now looking into this passage in chapter 4, we are entering a new part in the epistle. As this passage starts with, therefore, we can now expect that Paul makes some inferences, some implications from what he said before, and that will be practical applications and outworkings of the earlier chapters. Well, I suggest we start with the second part of our passage and deal with the gifts first. Now, he pointed out that Christ apportioned gifts to everyone, to all believers, according to his wisdom. And that is something he elaborates far, far more in length and in depth in other passages. For instance, Romans chapter 12 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. And so it looks like that this is not his primary concern initially about gifts for everyone. But rather, he's focusing on, on gifts given to people Jesus called for leadership and gifts them with the ability for leadership. This is one what he writes. 
in verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Now, I don't think Paul talks here about elected positions or, or offices, but rather leadership roles for which Christ empowers people. There have been several ways to, to interpret or, or understand these leadership roles. And one way to do this is to think about in the right way. Some roles are still active today, and some others might have ceased with the apostolic age. So, for instance, that view would argue, while well, apostles and prophets, that was the time of the New Testament, but it ceased with the apostolic age. And so today, active are only evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There's another view, for instance, that's maybe derivative from that, that would say, well, yes, apostles, that has ceased, but then subsumes all other four leadership roles under the category pastor in order to make it more, to align it maybe more with our contemporary understanding of church leadership. Well, I suggest that you just leave the text as it is and try to understand the text in its own terms. Try to understand what Paul is telling us here with the gifts Christ is giving. So when he talks about apostles, I don't think he thinks of the apostles like the 12 and maybe himself. But from the New Testament, you know, there were more people who were apostles in a way that they were sent out or started a ministry somewhere like church planters, or what we call today missionaries who start a church. Then when he talks about prophets, I don't think he thinks in terms of Old Testament prophets who come and say, thus says the Lord, and then and write a lengthy book or something like this. But rather, people who receive a revelation, a word from God, along 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and then speak that in order to encourage, to build up the church. And that's why Paul, elsewhere, encourages to test all revelations and this type of speech. Well, of course, evangelists, we know all who they are. These are people who convincingly and compellingly can share the gospel. And by the power of Holy Spirit, people get convicted as they speak. And we all know people who have done this in the past or still are doing that today. And then there are the pastors and teachers. These are two roles that are some distinct but somehow connected. Maybe along the line of Pharisees and scribes. All scribes are Pharisees, but not all Pharisees are scribes. So in that way, all pastors are teachers but not all teachers are pastors. Teachers who can explain and interpret the word, study and can share the findings, but then there are also teachers who have the gift of shepherding and caring for their people. I think what Paul is trying to bring across here is that there is a multiplicity of leadership that Christ gives for the church. And this multiplicity of leadership has diverse giftings. We find of that 
evidence in the New Testament times. For instance, in the church in Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, verses 1, it says, there were prophets and teachers, and Paul and Barnabas were two of them. Then in 1 Corinthians, he talks about that the church received apostles, prophets, and, and teachers as well. And when he writes his epistle to Philippians, in the greeting, he greets the church, but specifically also greets the overseers or the elders. And through a group of elders, also these roles can be expressed in a group of leaders. In our church, we try to come to terms with this multiplicity of leadership and diverse gifting that we have in our church council people who are overseeing ministry areas and lead them. And we have a senior pastor who comes along them and takes the lead in the overall ministry. Now, what is the purpose of these roles? What are they supposed to do with the gifts they have been given? Well, we can continue reading and to find out to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Once again, there have been several views of what that means. So there's one view that can be called the full clergy lady distinction view. And that is supported, for instance, by the King James Version of the Bible and is practiced in the Catholic Church and many high Protestant churches that would argue that Christ gifted his people to equip or perfect the saints and to do all the work of service and to build up the church. So with other words, the clergy is doing all the work and the congregants are on the receiving end. There's another view that could be called the ministry of all believers view. That is supported by translations like the NIV or the New Living Translation. And that view argues that Christ gifts these people so that they equip the saints, so that then in turn the saints do the work of service and build up the church. Of course, along with all these leaders too, that's their job too. I could ask us, well, which view do we um, prefer or <laughs> which one do we like better? But unfortunately, and with all due respect to King James, the NIV and New Living Translations represent more accurately what the text is saying. And that's what many churches, evangelical and free churches, and among them also our church, are advocating that Christ empowers leaders to equip the saints so that then the saints in turn can do the ministry. I specifically like how the New Living Translation puts that. 
It says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Now, what is Paul hoping to achieve with all that? That Christ equips people for leadership roles, and they, in turn, equip the saints to do all the work. We find that in the remaining verses. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking in the truth in love, we will all things grow up into him and who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love each part does its work. Well, in our church, in order that this um, can happen, we call the senior pastor in our constitution the chief equipper of the church. That is one of the main tasks of the pastor is, besides the core um, disciplines of, of pastoral care and pastoral service, is to train others. Kind of to pass on the baton, like in a relay. As a matter of fact, everyone who is taking a leadership role, and whatever the leadership role is, is encouraged to do the same, to train somebody else to pass it on. So that then ultimately, as we are saying in our vision, we are growing into a mature community of believers where everyone ministers one another so that then we see this result happening maturity a church that has become mature a church that is being protected and a church that is growing when Paul talks about a church becoming mature he's talking about corporate maturity using the image of an mature and competent adult who is growing more and more to be like Christ. Now, I said this before, Paul, overall in his ministry, is more concerned with the health of communities. He's talking less about the individual. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not concerned that each one of us as an individual is maturing, but rather, I think he's saying, well, it's not enough if three or five among you are mature. You all need to grow into maturity together. And he contrasts then, then with an immature or naive person. Can easily be swayed, tossed back and forth by all kinds of teachings. And we have come across in our study one pretty significant could call it even heresy in Colossians chapter 2 when, when Don Harder was speaking on it, what was going on in the Colossae where people were coming and introducing something like 
you need Jesus plus something else. But it also could be some hype, some fads, a new teaching where a church might think, okay, now we need to all follow this new teaching, go that way. And then a little bit later, when this fades, well, now a new teaching arrives and we need to go all that way. And at the end, not going anywhere. And when he talks about growing, I think he talks about a comprehensive and organic growth where we grow from Christ and into Christ, into an organism where everyone has one's own place and makes a contribution. An organism, even as Paul says, that through Christ is able to sustain itself and is not dependent on one person only. So for instance, if the pastor leaves and everything falls apart. That's not what Paul is aiming for. Now as we're looking at the overall or results of the gifts Christ is giving to the church. I would like to point out um, two things. The way Paul talks about the results is that he first talks about maturity and then the protection or the threats to the church and then growth. Maturity and growth are bracketing the threats to the church. As if he also wants to say through the way he writes it, now, if you are maturing in Christ and growing in Christ, that will check the threats to the church. That brings us back what we talked about in the beginning when Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. I mean, when that is happening, the church will be empowered to face obstacles, to face opposition to face threats to its integrity. In a way that Paul calls speaking the truth in love. And then second, when we look at the maturity part and the growth part, we see that unity is built into this concept. That it's kind of in the DNA of Maturing in Christ and growing in Christ. And that brings me now in closing back to the beginning of our passage, to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, which I believe works like a preamble to everything what's following in the rest of the epistle. Like he's saying, in order to fully understand what I'm talking about in the remaining of the letter, you need to read it through the lens of this preamble through the lens of the first six verses, to read it and understand it. Let's read once again these verses. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
In this preamble, Paul tells the readers and tells us, you all have a common destiny. And you have a common confession. And you have a common bond. That is peace and love. And if you don't get these things right, the rest will be futile and not achieving anything. I would like now to ushers to come forward to take our offering. And as they come forward, I would like uh, to pray. <clears throat>